0: Hey, welcome to Progressions, success in the music industry. I'm your host Travis Ference, and this is episode number 82. It's also our second episode available on YouTube in full video format. So there is a lot of work going into the video version. So please consider subscribing to the show on YouTube as well as in the podcast player of your choice. Today's interview is with mixing engineer Matt Huber. We had a super fun chat. I think y'all will enjoy it as much as I did. We covered everything from mix prep workflow hacks and the value of the rough mix to Dolby Atmos and why it's much more than the best mix wins. But before Before we get into the interview, I wanted to do a little segment on time and how we perceive time. This was something I was writing a piece on for my newsletter, and I know some of you out there don't subscribe, and I didn't want y'all to miss out. So hopefully after this, you'll feel inclined to sign up for the newsletter. Okay, so time. Time is interesting in that it truly is the only thing we have a limited amount of. And of that time, we have no control over the speed at which it passes. The funny thing is that the way we decide to perceive time can make us feel the opposite. We can feel that we have what seems like an eternity of it ahead of us, or we can also perceive it in a way that makes us feel that we have absolutely none of it. On this podcast, I've talked a lot about how things occur to you when they happen in your life or in your career. Example, when you release a song or a track you worked on comes out and it just doesn't perform that well, it can occur to you that it's a huge setback in your career. When... It's actually not. And so what does that have to do with time? Well, I just wanted to demonstrate the power of how we decide to perceive something, how it occurs to us. And actually, the language I used when I started this piece out is a great example of what I'm talking about. I chose to say limited amount of. Uh, I also happen to be super busy at this very moment in my life. So saying limited feels like it puts a sense of urgency into it. It makes you feel a bit stressed. And if I wasn't using this as an example, I would have probably gone back and changed that to finite amount of. That's a little bit less stress inducing, but still equally true. So the question of the day is, how does time occur to you? Does it occur to you that you have a limited amount of time and that you have to make the most of it? Or does it feel like it's unlimited and there's absolutely no pressure to take action? For most people, it lands somewhere in between those two places. And ever since my daughter was born, my relationship with time has felt extremely different. And any parents out there can probably relate. Days can feel long, months can feel quick. Watching her grow to almost a year old has felt like the blink of an eye. It makes you feel the pressure of time when you see it pass that quick. When you're in the midst of your own life, you don't really perceive the pace at which it's going. But when you have a child, you have this constant gauge for time that's right next to you, literally right next to you all the time. And you're watching this little human grow and get older, and it reminds you that you're also getting older. And so I think I would have liked to have come to this perspective on time maybe like a decade or more ago. Definitely didn't want a child a decade ago. But to view time like this and decide to harness it to get more done and to focus, I think would have been immensely helpful early in my career. Because now something like walking into the studio for an hour can sometimes feel like a full workday. Early in my career, a mix took like a day, maybe two. It was like a ritual process of working on sections for hours, taking ear breaks, chatting with people in the studio, maybe downloading a plugin and messing around, looking for some inspiration. And yeah, it was a different point in my career and those things were super important at the time, but I also didn't have an urgency because I was young and the future felt long. And I'm not trying to get dark and say we're all gonna die, but I'm just saying that over the last year, I've come to realize how long an hour is and how much can happen In an hour when you focus. So I've decided to embrace this finiteness of time and use that to be sure I accomplish the things I want to accomplish. When you start to look at your calendar and say, how long will this actually take? And how can I approach this task to make the max impact with the time I've allotted? That's when you start to understand what's actually possible. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, right? You might find that you can add more projects or have more personal time than you thought you could. And you might also find that you have overpromised to a lot of people and that you can't take any more jobs. But to close it out, I don't want you to walk away from this intro thinking about how you're going to time block your calendar. That's not the point. What I want you to walk away with is obviously... Not thinking that you can control time, because you can't. We don't live in a video game yet. But that you can control how you perceive it. You decide whether you have enough time to do the things you want in your life. Doesn't matter whether it's releasing your solo project or to start doing woodworking. The only person telling you that you don't have time for what you want to do is you. Today's guest is Nashville-based mix engineer Matt Huber. Matt has become known for his highly competitive pop and indie mixes, racking up credits for artists such as Valley, Betty Who, Knightley, Joan, Elio, and Cruiser over the last few years. He's also passionate about education and building community within the mix engineer world. So welcome to the show, Matt Huber. What's up, Matt? Dude, not much. Glad to be here. Very good to hang out with you, Travis. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This will be fun. You know, I have to start with kind of like a little bit of a joke, poke fun kind of thing.
1: Yeah, go for
0: it. So uh, 2020, you know, everybody's like in their house. I'm like Mm -hmm. looking for artists to work with. I'm like cruising playlists. And every time I find a song that I like, I'm like, all right, cool, save that. And then I do some research. And there's a common thread between all these songs. It was like these Joan tracks and Valley and Nightly. And I keep finding myself on your Instagram. That's hilarious. Finding their album cover. And I was like, who is Matt Huber? It got to the point where I think I started actually calling you my mixing arch nemesis to my wife. I was like, this dude is doing everything I wish I was doing. <laughs> But uh, so that's where I got hip to you. And I I obviously, I think your work is really cool. You're working with great artists. So I'm glad we get to connect.
1: Well, thank you. That's so kind. We all have to have a nemesis. Right. I debated telling that story
0: because I think it's kind of funny. But then it's also, I don't believe that, you know, like there's a limited amount of work. Like I don't believe that you're like taking my work, but no, no, I'm the same place. There's a lot of people in this industry that do and they like get pissed. And I guess it depends on where your mindset is, but.
1: Oh, dude, 100%. Yeah, that's an interesting thing not to go off on a tangent here, but I moved to Nashville a few years ago and the thing that I loved most about it was as I entered into this community of, you know, career music professionals, I almost expected it to be kind of cutthroat, but I was shocked to see like a community of just like generosity. I don't know a better way to say it, but like mastering engineers and mix engineers that just welcomed me in with open arms and were like Nice. Excited to show me the ropes of, uh, you know, uh, the little guy moving to the, the, to the music city. And it was, <laughs> it's was. it been a really positive thing. And I, I think the majority of my close friends are fellow mix engineers. Oh, yeah. Technically, in any, you know, any other mindset, they'd be my competitors. But I just, it's great that it's not like that generally.
0: No, it, like I said, it depends on the circle of people that you're running in. I came up mm-hmm. through, like, the traditional, like, studio thing. And I feel like people get a little mm-hmm. frustrated when you know, like they don't get a promotion and somebody else does. And uh, so I'm I'm very aware that there's a lot of bitterness out there. And, and it bums me out because I think there's like, what, 60,000 songs going up on Spotify every day. There's oh, enough yeah. music for everybody to produce, everybody to play guitar on it. You know, it's like, there's enough. Absolutely. You just came to Nashville a couple of years ago. Where are you from originally?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was in, of all places, Little Rock, Arkansas, okay. doing the music thing. And it was like, I mean, I was seriously the only full-time you know, mix engineer that I knew. I, I started out as a producer, but parlayed into mixing by accident, honestly. It was, it, mixing was always the thing I was like, I don't ever want to be a mix engineer. And then it's like the <laughs> thing that I love most. <laughs> I don't know what that was all about. But yeah, so I was like the only person in Arkansas that I knew that was mixing full time. So it was, it was a weird thing and quite a refreshing move to move to a place where you get across the table with someone and commiserate about. I don't know, label deliverables, you know? You know, yeah. it's just dumb stuff like that. Yeah. And so,
0: yeah. What was the community like in Little Rock? Were you doing, like, everything going on in that town or were you doing a lot of stuff, like, remotely?
1: Well, initially, it was just, uh, I mean, it's the classic story of, uh, I liked music and I wanted to make music with my friends and found out that it was what I was doing was valuable to somebody and that, like, awesome, I can earn money doing this. So it was just kind of that slow build that way of right. not even really... Uh, you know, like I said, I started out producing. And it was not even knowing what a producer was. I didn't know that's I heard someone talk about a producer, and I was like, "Oh, that's what I've been doing. I guess I might be a producer. <laughs> but it was kind of like there were little pockets of people. You know, there's a the hobbyist, and then there are the people that you kind of see, and they're like, oh, they're doing something a little different, and they're a little more serious about this. And so I just find myself gravitating toward those people. I just I had a seriousness in what I did, very passionate about it. And I just wanted to be around people of like mentality. And so pretty quickly, I mean, I wasn't doing like all the music in Arkansas by any means. There are, you know, other people doing great work, but in the circle of people that I knew, I was generally the only producer that people knew. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or a producer that was really trying to do things that were competitive and, you know, sounded like they could be on a radio station. Right, right. (laughs) Even if it's a local radio station, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, I would just, I found kind of what happened is there was a band, Joan, that I've done a lot of mixing for. You know, I just became friends with them. One of the guys, Alan, became a really close friend of mine. We did a lot of sync uh, music work together and kind of earned his trust that way. Because I always saw him, I was like, this guy's good at what he does and I just want to be around, you know? Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. some of his brilliance can rub off on me. And uh, we ended up ended up finally working together and it was just, you know, right time, right place sort of a thing. And that was the project that ultimately kind of helped break me out of that little box that I was in, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and helped me start, you know, parlaying that into, you know, work with people all over the place, so. That's awesome.
0: Are they an Arkansas band? I guess I'm assuming they so. Are. You, oh, they okay. are, yeah. Oh, nice, nice.
1: Yep, they're decidedly Arkansas boys. Are they still there? They love living there, yeah. It's a quiet place where, you know, I, I think they both really enjoy the vibe of, you know, going on tours, you know, they just got back from Asia and like all that. And then coming back to a place that is not a music environment, I think is really helpful for them. Yeah. You know, not a place that's like all about music. I think living in Nashville or LA would probably be exhausting them. They've had the opportunity.
0: Yeah. It's funny. It's like, did you go to music school or anything?
1: I didn't. Yeah. I wanted to go, I wanted to major in music business or something like that. Right. But where I went, they didn't offer anything like that. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going, I'm a business major now. Right, right. Well, what I was going to say is it's, I I went to music school and I
0: find that like, you just like throw yourself into that situation where like everything is music, 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 music. Mm -hmm. I watched so many people burn out really fast. And so, oh man, like, you know, going on tour and playing everywhere and then going back to home. I mean, that makes total sense to me because Oh yeah, I've seen people burn out just because they're in it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you're like, it's
1: not fun anymore. You know, for some people, some people, uh, you know, no, I mean, I totally relate to that. That's, a, that's been a big part of my journey is trying to figure out how to maintain a like purity in what I do. You know what I mean? And there ebbs and flows, you know, things get really busy and all of a sudden you start thinking about it like a job or, you know, business or, you know, I have to check this off the list. And you kind of see yourself abandoning some of the guiding lights that got you to where you are. Yeah, And uh yeah, I mean, I feel like that's my like six-month cycle. You know what I mean? Like, correct, come back around, correct.
0: I was going to say, that's one of those things that just goes, you have this like artistic quarter followed by this like, just what feels like a slug sometimes, where you're just like, ah, oh, oh yeah, just grinding it out. I can't believe I do this. And other people are like, you make music. And you're like... Yeah. Hard. It's hard, man.
1: And it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm in that one of those times where I feel like the luckiest man in the world to be able to do what I do. So hopefully that lasts for lasts a little longer. Yeah.
0: 10, 15, 20 years. There you go.
1: Yeah. That would be great.
0: Something that you were you were talking about always comes up on this show is like how important community is and like mm-hmm. surrounding yourself with people. Like you said, you identified the people in your town that you're like, wow, these people are good. I want to make more music with them. When you got mm-hmm. to Nashville. Were you meeting a lot of people? How'd you how'd you kind of like rebuild that community when you got to Nashville?
1: Mm, I think some of it, uh, a lot of it was, I already had a lot of folks that I was mixing for here in Nashville. Ah, and okay. so there were relationships started there that were kind of a seedbed to continue growing those relationships. And then, you know, I'm not like a big social media guy. It might look like I am, but like for me, <laughs> social media is in a very like specific compartment in my life it serves a specific purpose and I try to not let it outside of that purpose. But point <laughs> being, I always love, you know, like teaching, giving, I feel like saying like mixed tips and stuff, like everybody's doing that now. So it feels kind of almost like lame, right. like I'm on TikTok doing really terrible mixed tips or whatever. But but it was just an outlet for me because I love teaching and I found myself in a room by myself all the time. And I was like, I I just needed an outlet for the things I was getting pumped about. I was like, I wanted to turn around and tell someone about this fun thing that I figured out and so oh yeah it became my outlet for that but all that to say that really helped me get connected with a lot of mix engineers here because I was already chatting them up on Instagram you know what I mean right just right nerding out about stuff do you
0: know like what part of you makes you want to like share your tricks with people and any idea where that came from
1: that's a really good question. I think some of it is just I enjoy teaching and sharing. And I think a part of it also comes from not having that when I was coming up as a mix engineer. I, I mean, I'm still coming up as a mix engineer. This makes me sound like I'm, you know, 60 years old at the end of my career. <laughs> but I think it was because I didn't have that mentor or anybody helping me as I was learning. I really kind of just wanted to be the person that I wanted at that point in my career and so i've always wanted to be a resource and and i even think like there you know there's a mastering engineer here in town his name is sam moses does great work he uh when i moved here he, he was like you know anything i needed any question i had any problem i had any like weird nuanced communication issue i was having that i'd never had to face before he was always like his phone line was open i could call him text him anytime and he would just bail me out and save me so much heartache. And I was like, I wanna be that for people. And I just see like the benefits of that generosity and not only like how it helps the community, but how it helps your perspective as you work amongst people. You know what I mean? It's a calibrating thing for you as an individual. Yeah. Attempting to be generous in the community.
0: Yeah, no, that I mean, I think it's awesome. I, it definitely seems to be, you know, over the last I don't know, 15, 20 years more sharing. Mm -hmm. Even like the old school guys that would really only like share with the people, you know, in the room with them. Right. I guess part of it is there's so many outlets. Like there's so many Mm -hmm. ways to share now. It's like whether it's mixed with the masters or TikTok.
1: Yeah, I guess that's probably part of why it
0: feels so much more common than it did when I started, you know, like 16 years ago.
1: Yeah, it's just something I'm super passionate about, something I enjoy. But I think it's one of those things people are like, when are you going to make a course or something? And I'm like, that sounds exhausting. I like being able to like just record a little 60-second, 30-second snippet and be like, all right, forget it, and I'm going to you know, move on with life. But it would, I think at some point formalized education resources or something like that I would I would really enjoy. Yeah. I don't know why. It just sounds kind of fun to me. <laughs> well, maybe you can make a
0: course. Yeah, who knows? Leave it out there one day. Well, so since you said you didn't have a mentor, you were mostly sounds like you were like self-taught. Like, where were you getting tricks from? Just experimenting
1: or were you cruising the internet? Like, how'd you learn? Yeah, it's almost like, you know, I I feel like in me, there was just sort of this like bent towards wanting to know more about audio and more about just audio in general and music and mixing and DAWs, just everything. It's like when I was bored, even though I said that I didn't want to be a mix engineer, when I was bored, I was like researching mixing and I was, you know, just perusing forums, read so much garbage information that was wrong. But, you know, it's like, (laughs) I remember distinctly, I like was researching for months and months and months. And then it was like, some point I started getting mix work and started applying these things. Some of them were bad ideas. Some of them were good ideas, but it's like, I was finally able to apply them to what I was doing and, and those things kind of found their place. But yeah, I think I just had like a bent towards wanting to learn about it. I don't even know how to explain why. Right. I just wanted to know more about it. I don't know. It's kind wow. of a weird thing how that works. Strange fascination with yeah. just collecting knowledge. Oh yeah, I
0: think that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> just collecting, hoarding. Hoarding hoarding knowledge. Well, I feel like exactly. so many producers, especially now, with budgets and everything, so many producers end up mixing their own records and actually mm-hmm. mixing great records as well. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you get files from people all the time where you're like, what do you want me to do to it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Those are the best. That's actually kind of my favorite mix situation. I love, oh, yeah. being, I love being the last, I mean, even if it's the last 5%, the last 10%, whatever it is, I find that to be extremely rewarding. And a lot of, you know, that was a learning curve for me because when you're, coming up you're used to getting things that are just in dismal condition and then like you get this project where you're like oh gosh they could release this and people would be like who mixed that that's great right and that initially that was intimidating until i learned that every person has is expecting something slightly different from mix the mix and that was a great lesson for me to learn like find out what this person why are they coming to you like what do they want out of it what would they define as a win in the mix some people want you to turn it on on its head, but some people want a slightly v- better version of their rough. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So that was a, an essential learning curve for me. Very freeing, too. Yeah. Like, knowing expect, uh, what they're expecting was so important for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's also, I think, freeing when the tracks are good and you're mm-hmm. just doing that last 10% because it's just such a way more creative 10%. That's exactly it. And even if you do take some risks outside the rough mix, like, they already have that version. Like, that version exists. But when you have something that's not put together and it doesn't sound good to begin with, like, Mm -hmm. first, it has to sound good. So, first, you have to take it to usable. And then by then, like, a lot of your creativity is burnt and your perspective is gone. And you're just like, well, this is good, right? Okay, cool. Because you just melodined 20 vocal tracks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Mm Totally. Totally. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Well, I had a question. You kind of touched on it. Mm-hmm. You talked about chatting with your clients and getting clear on like what a win is in the mix. Mm-hmm. What is your pre-mix routine, whether it's like a lot of conversations. Do you share music? Do you have specific deliverables? Do you do your mix prep or do you have a person? What's that like lead up like for you?
1: Well, so something that, you know, this probably isn't too unique, but I'm pretty uh, forthcoming on the front end of what I expect in terms of file delivery. I wasn't for a while, but then I realized that I was just creating a lot of problems for myself. You know, a lot of it was like, oh, I don't want to be a burden, that sort of mentality. But I've found that most people if they know that you're on their team and that you both want the same thing, you know, to communicate that mix in the most appropriate way, most impactful way, if they know that you're on, on their team, they're willing to collaborate in that way and help make your job as uh, set you up for success as much as possible. So I'm very, um, I'm not like a, not crazy about it in terms of like, I'm not super specific on stuff, but, uh, you know, just give them guidelines of like, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, I like everything Exactly how they left it. Everything post, just commit everything. Give me a wet and dry version of the lead vocal, and I'm happy. And you know, I always, if I need to go back and get something, I can ask for. But 99 times out of 100, I can roll with what they've got. So that's generally where I start. And so, not a lot of prep on my end. I've got things dialed in pretty well to be able to get my session set up in you know just a few minutes. I've got it. Nice. We can talk about that if you want to. I love workflow. Perfect. I'm so passionate about workflow. But yeah, I I, I haven't done the assistant thing. Uh, I did have an assistant help me out for a while, but I it was almost like with session prep, it was almost harder to have an assistant do that for me than for me to do it myself just because my workflow is dial- really dialed in with that. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of like communicating expectations on the front end, I'll have those conversations if I feel like, you know, especially if I listen to it and the the direction isn't super well defined, I'll have those conversations a little more. I'm super open to references and things like that. But ultimately, and this was a shift I made, actually, I, I lost a shootout one time and it was basically because I strayed too far from the vision that they had established. I was like, I'm going to do my own thing. You know, they're coming to me for me, that sort of mentality. And then I lost it, <laughs> lost the gig. It's like the danger of a shootout. <laughs> exactly. And so that was a big turning point for me of just, you know, and everybody has got their different opinions on this, but what that taught me is the value of the rough mix. And so I don't find a lot of those conversations to be super necessary. A lot of times, like on the front end, if you've got a a rough that you can study, most of your questions can be answered just by listening to that. You know what I mean? Like, even if some of the ideas aren't executed perfectly, you can tell the target that they're aiming at. And a lot of times what their influences are. And so you can kind of make some inferences there. But yeah, I feel like that was a long-winded answer to a simple question. No, it's
0: good. It's good. Well, another question I had was workflow and productivity hacks, and you brought that up. So what's... What what are some of your favorite workflow things? You said you're a workflow nerd.
1: Well, so I, I see that you actually had Billy Decker on I did, your yeah, show. Yeah. And um, I, I don't really, I haven't listened to a ton of his work. I've listened to some of it, but I remember reading, I think it was like a Sound on Sound article or something like that. He was featured in it. Um, was it Sound on Sound? Whatever it was, he was featured in it. He was talking about, yeah, you know, a mix in 45 minutes. And I was like, oh my gosh, And it was like, I think at that time I was like mixing a song in a day and a half or something like that. And I was like, how is that even possible? And it was kind of like, you know, before I'm not a runner, but is it a four minute mile? Was that the, that was, or was it three minute, whatever it was at some point, I guess, I think it's four minutes, like a four minute mile was unimaginable. And then someone crosses that benchmark. And then all of a sudden, high schoolers are running four-minute miles. You know what I mean? Right. And yeah. Billy Decker was the four-minute mile for me <laughs> where I heard it and I was like, I didn't even know this was possible. And I don't think I'm, I want to do mixes that quickly for personal reasons. It helped me realize the power of workflow. And yeah. um, I remember as soon as I heard that, I was like, all right, let's find every single uncreative thing in my day and figure out how can I either eliminate or automate as much of this as possible. Yeah. Because I mean, like what you're talking about earlier, like the non creative stuff drains your supply for creativity. And I'm the best mix engineer when I can show up with the maximum amount of creativity yeah. to put into the moments that I'm mixing. And so, I mean, it was a lot of it was tiny things like, like I open up Devil Lock and I find myself doing the same exact thing where I, you know, put, all these knobs this place and the mix here, that's always my starting point because it gives this sound that I just love. And it's like, it's this particular color that I like painting with a lot. Yeah, Just save that as my default preset. So I'm not twiddling knobs every time I pull it up. Simple things like that. And then, you know, with session like setup, I've just got a template that where all my IO, all my routing, all my buses, everything like that is the same across every single session I do. No decisions are being made for me. I do have some like starting points for like fifteen or so like effects chains for vocals and whatnot. But the point is, is every single session I load up, when I'm gonna route a vocal to a plate reverb, I'm not having to, you know, route it to bus sixty-three, sixty-four and rename that bus to plate. Right. Every single time it's plate, every single time it's, you know, short haul, long haul, small room, large room, vox wide. Those are things that be at some point become muscle memory for me as opposed to Wasting 15 seconds to route create something route rename so my templates set up where all my busing all my groups my folders are all set up color code So then I just bring I ask my clients artists and producers I, I have the opportunity to work with ask them to send me things in categories, you know drums perk So on and so forth so that I can just bring those in and I've already got them grouped up So I can just highlight them right click and I've got track presets that will take care of my routing my color coding, my, you know, automatically put it in a group, those sorts of things. So, yep. you know, at that point, it just becomes five minutes of work to get your session set up. So it does. But yeah. Just kind of finding every single little thing that's non-creative and finding ways to spend as little time as possible on it. Things like Soundflow have been really helpful for me. Oh, Love Soundflow. And the simple thing of creating your own keyboard shortcuts and learning every single shortcut you possibly can in Pro Tools. Yeah. Makes a huge difference. It's not just for, not just being a nerd, you know what I mean? It's totally. Very practical.
0: Well, especially if you're working in the room with people, like the faster mm-hmm. you can get that idea out, you know, for somebody, the better. Absolutely. And, you know, listening to you describe this, I think actually you had like a mixed template video or something, right?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: I think I watched that. And did you do your track preset loading that was, like, color mm-hmm. code. Okay, that was the first time that, like, track presets clicked for me because I, I always had my mix template, and, like, I would pull mm-hmm. things in, then I would drag things in, and then when I saw you do that, I was like, oh, shit, if my mix template was, like, in track presets, and then Soundflow came along, and now I just have, like, a I have a mix prep Dude. deck. And so I just yes. pull all my tracks in at the top, I find my kicks, I highlight my three kicks, I press my kicks button, it moves it to the folder. It loads it, and then it jumps to the top. So then I can just yes. find my snares, and I click my four snares. Oh and I, dude! Oh man! It's insanity! Love sound it's great! It's great!
1: It's so good. I need to. I had the Stream Deck for a while and didn't use it much, but now I'm like, feel like I need to do that again.
0: Yeah. Have you used Chris Shaw's track utilities thing? I have it like right next to me. I have not, but I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> well, it, it's one of the free ones, but you can like copy track data. And then paste inserts or paste sends. And like that, okay,
1: is saves so much time. So, yes, I, I do have that. Okay. I literally do that all the time. Oh, just, i just, didn't, I didn't remember what it was, I, yeah. but I've got the keyboard shortcut. I think mine's Shift Command C or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Anyway, tangent to sound flow, but yeah, I, right. I,
0: I love the workflow stuff. And, you know, I had an assistant for a little while. And then once you really figure out how to make your workflow fast, you're like, well, I don't need somebody to do this for two hours when I can do it in 15 minutes. Right. And there's never any confusion either. You know, it's like... Exactly. I know what I consider a keyboard versus synth, and you don't. Mm -hmm. You know, was... Exactly. That kind of stuff, so...
1: Yeah, I sometimes... Like, I got Bounce Factory, the Shep's thing, and it's been unbelievably helpful for me, and I felt a little bit guilty replacing my amazing assistant with a robot. (laughs) Yeah, yes. I'm part of the problem, man. Part of the problem. Well, you know, you have to be able
0: to work faster and work within budgets and like Mm -hmm. if you can do a project you know and meet the requirements because you're using bounce factory to bounce your stems Mm -hmm. while you're sleeping then isn't that a win
1: for everybody people get to work with you you get to do the gig so and like things like like stems i feel like you know that's the classic thing where artists and producers will often have to wait weeks to get stems from mix engineer and being able to be someone who can even anticipate that need and have them ready for them before they even ask for them, because it's, it's no work for me. It's like, okay. it's just an audit maybe a couple minutes to set it up and then it's just working. But if I know that they're going to ask for stems at some point, like a tool like bounce factory makes it so much easier to be a help and uh, the, an area of least friction for the people I work with. The last thing they're going to remember
0: is that you got them the stems fast. Not that they had to send you five emails asking for the stems. Yeah. You know, it's like a-
1: one, of my, one of my favorite moves. This is so stupid, but I'll have them ready and I'll wait until they ask for them. Like, hey, can you get stems sometime the next week? And I'll send them to them, you know, 10 seconds later. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an unnecessary little flex, but
0: the tech allows me to do it. I mean, what's awesome? What what kind of stems do you do? Do you have stuff that you do or do you break everything down? Like what's your stemming?
1: Well, I was doing kind of group down a little more for the longest time. But when it was kind of like I started using Bounce Factory and then the Atmos wave was building. I could see it yeah. off in the distance. And I knew that it would probably just be best if I started doing a literal like multi-track solo print like every single track in the session some exceptions like there's some very sensible things like kicks to right. group up yeah but beyond that i essentially do just a full you know as uh, broken up as possible damn to anticipate at most because a lot of people are just asking for it now and that's those are the types of prints they're going to want and so i just do that by default again because it doesn't take me any more time That's true it actually takes me less time to do it that way than to figure out, you know, grouping. Yeah. Could build it into a template, but yeah, you know what I mean. Totally. Well, here's the,
0: the question that everybody battles over. Stems through the mix bus or not? I always do them through
1: the mix bus. Same,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And then I would pay $1,000 like right now if uh, <laughs> Isotope reached out to me and they're like, you can pay $1,000 for a side chain input on Ozone. I would pay $1,000 right now because that's been my Achilles heel
0: so when you're doing your stems, you're sidechaining your mix bus compressor with a print of the stereo.
1: Yeah, print right before the that plugin. But you can't do that on There's no sidechain in Ozone. There's no sidechain in Ozone. Man, it would make everything easier. They're going to need to do it with I would be shocked if they didn't do it because of the whole Atmos thing. Having oh. sidechain input would just be a massive help. I guess I never noticed. Because, you know, I mean, that's just, that's a really, really hard thing to chase if you're trying to rebuild something without, like, multiband compression, for instance. Oh, yeah. It's just
0: really tough. It's that, the age-old battle of uh, getting the stems and listening to the rough mix and you're like, you printed these 100% wet? And they're like, yep. And you're like, uh, okay, what's on your master bus?
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they're like, ozone. They're like,
0: O-T-T. The 14, <laughs> O-T-T on the master bus. Jesus. Right. Sausage fattener. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thanks. Well, you mentioned Atmos. I know you're getting into it. You're you're starting to to go that way. I talk a lot of shit about doing Atmos, but I haven't really mm-hmm. done any. I've probably read more and watched more videos than anybody that ever lived, but I haven't done it. <laughs> uh, so, what do you what do you think? Are you enjoying it? Like, wh- what's up with Atmos for you?
1: Well, I think ultimately the big thing, whether I enjoy it or not, is the people that I'm working for. Do they want it and can I serve them in doing that? And the answer for me is, is increasingly becoming yes. Like I need to do this to help the people that I'm working with. And yeah. so at first I was very resistant to it and I, I could just feel myself. I'm like, I'm the old stereo curmudgeon. Like I know, I know that I'm that person, like oh, this newfangled tech, that sort of thing. And um, I knew that I had that attitude um, and so I was, you know, I hope I had a little self-awareness there, but I was trying to remain open to it. You know, I think, especially if you are paying attention to it at the very beginning, all of us, our introduction to it was a sloppy launch. And then a lot of expectation for us to be up to speed with technology that wasn't really built to do what we're doing. Yeah, And then also, you know, even people who we're doing it. We all heard a lot of really, really bad mixes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so that was my introduction to it. So I'm like, there's no way this is going to be a good thing. And, you know, I think ideologically, a big rub that I've had is just, you know, it's not something that consumers have been asking for. So I've had a little bit of an ideological problem with that. It's been a classic, like, the tech companies being like, you like this. And we're like, okay, yes, we like it. Um but you know I think what what happened was I kind of shifted my mentality to like all right do my clients want this do they need it are they asking for it yes some of them are and um so there was that aspect there was the aspect of I had a couple records that I really deeply cared about that I got I heard the Atmos mixes on them and I it just they didn't represent what we worked so hard to create and that was pretty heartbreaking and so there was the aspect of wanting to protect my creative work because I value I not only value my creative work, I value the time that I've spent with the artists and producers to create what they have in their heart and in their head. Yeah. To create that together. So I want to protect that. And because, you know, there's so many nuanced things that even if I sat down and had a two-hour conversation with the person I was handing it off to, there are expressions that I have in my head from the FaceTime calls when they heard this certain sound or reacted to something. There's just so much nuance that's impossible to communicate. And so there was that aspect of wanting to maintain creative integrity. And then also the third thing was the more I educated myself on it and the more I started hearing mixes and even just like the technology in action, the more I started believing that it could be a good thing and that there's potential in it. And so I, I kind of, I really have come around to where I believe that as much as I have some qualms with it, I believe that it could offer something special To the music listening experience, yeah. The thing that I'm particularly worried about is, you know, we kind of came up in a time where technology was democratized, and where technology got cheaper, cheaper, and cheaper and cheaper to the point where you can be a, you know, high school kid with a laptop, and you can make, you know, something that could be a, a worldwide impactful song. And or mix or whatever. So it kind of went, it's kind of gone to that extreme to if, if spatial and Atmos becomes a, an integral part to being a mix engineer, it creates a really large barrier to entry for the young up and comers. I mean, obviously, yeah. you can somewhat do it on headphones, but if you start doing it on headphones, you real, realize very quickly the limitations that in that you're you're kind of like working through a dirty lens almost. You know what I mean? Things yeah. are just blurry and kind of undefined and vague. So that is something I kind of worry about is how it creates a a giant barrier to entry. Right. For young mix engineers. Cause I mean, I, I felt like it was easy for me to get into mixing. Logic was $199 and I had the laptop that I used for college. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yep. Yep. The mixes you've done, have you been doing them in a room on speakers? So I don't have my speakers yet. So I have been doing them in headphones. And I've been working with a handful of guys here in town and elsewhere who have proper setups. So yeah. kind of collaborating and learning through that experience. But I plan on making the jump in January. So I mean, I really only started turning in mixes this week. Oh, okay. So this is very, very fresh for me. Right. Well, fresh in the practical sense, but in the learning sense in the in the mauling over it. This is a, you know, year and a half process. But you kind of caught me on that on the turning point.
0: That's cool, though. So are you? what's your setup? Are you going to go ATCs? That's what you have,
1: right? I have ATCs. So I am probably going to go pretty conservative on it. I've, an, I've had a number of friends go, you know, 70, 80 grand in and yep, right. say that they wish they would have, you know, everybody's mileage is different, but I've had a few friends being like, man, I wish I would have just gone cheap on it right now. And so I'm going to probably go Neumann's for my okay. Atmos rig. But yeah, I mean, it was. uh, I don't know if you follow the John Haynes, Serban thread on Gearspace. There's this million view thread on there that's been going for about a year. John Haynes is Serban's right hand man who uh, does almost all of his Atmos work now. Uh. And he's been doing it, you know, for a long time. John has at this point. And I mean, he just did, they just did Thriller on, you know, Genelec 8020s, which is the second smallest speaker that. Genelec makes. So my yeah. my line of reasoning is if John and Servant are doing it on eighty twenties I can do it on Neumann KH-120s. You it's know a, what I mean? Totally. It's,
0: I, I worked at Capital for a long time and mm-hmm. uh, I've been in, you know, that Studio C, PMC mm-hmm. setup that's like kind of the the gold standard, which oh, unfortunately yeah. that building is closed now. But I mean, it sounds amazing on speakers. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. But the only stuff I've done on headphones... I totally agree with you. It is the most confusing shit ever on headphones. You're just like... It is. Like, I I understand why this is fun when you're in a room and you can, like, point Mm -hmm. something between speakers. I was like, but nothing I'm doing means anything in the headphones. And so I had a conversation with one of my buddies, uh, Nick Rives, who was a capital guy Has done a lot of it. And I was like, I was like, I'm conflicted because I feel like if headphones are the end game for the consumer then I should be able to do this on headphones. Mm-hmm. And he had a great response. He was like, you could totally do this on headphones if you knew how to do it in a room. He's like, but you can't just sit there on headphones and think that you understand where things are going. He's like, if you go the other way, like if you spend time in a room and you kind of understand what works in a room, he's like, yeah, if you do it for a year that way, you could totally do it on headphones. right?" And I was like, yeah, I guess that does make sense because I don't know if you've thought about like the end game being just like earbuds, right? Oh, yeah, that's been my biggest problem, man. The binaural is, like, super important, right? You know, you're just like, well, if the binaural sounds bad, then it doesn't matter what it sounds like in speakers because everybody's going to listen to the binaural, but I
1: don't know. Yeah, I've I've done, like, reviews, recalls on, on Atmos mixes, and, like, the engineer will be like, I'll be like, well, there's this, this, and this, and they're like, well, you should go rent a room and hear it on speakers. I'm like not doing that. <laughs> you know, like, I'm listening how 99.9% of the consumers of this music are going to be listening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it's going to lean one way or another, we're going to lean into the tra- headphone translation. But I agree, it's like... It's very confusing. Yeah, but you got to think about the full picture. But yeah, it's like the first mix I did on headphones, I realized it was like immediate. I was like, okay, I, I don't think I feel comfortable always doing this on headphones. Yeah. You'll pan something all the way to the back corner and it kind of sounds like it's a little bit back, you know, like yeah. vaguely behind you. Yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. Seems like you can make some pretty irresponsible decisions pretty easily yeah. in headphones.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, when I have heard good mixes though, I do enjoy them.
1: So that mm-hmm. that kind
0: of gives me hope and And interest, but... um.
1: Yeah, and I think, like, there's some... Even in the headphone experience, I feel like, you know, maybe it gives an extra 25 to 30%, like, space or room in the mix. Like, that seems pretty valuable to me, Yeah, ultimately. I mean, even if it's a small gain, it is a gain. And furthermore, I think the loudness standards are a really good counterbalance to the loudness trends in modern music. You know, I feel like over the past six months to a year, I just... I get really tired of smashing things to negative six or whatever. And because, you know, I hear it at negative eight and negative nine. I'm like, oh, this is so punchy, so engaging. And then like, yeah, it's, it's louder now, but it lost something. And I'm excited. The negative 18 standard for me isn't just like a, you know, mathematical, you know, whatever thing. I think it provides opportunity for music to have more dynamic in a way that most people haven't been able to experience in a long time. No then I think it's kind of refreshing. So I think there are positive things that are coming from it as much as I had a super sour attitude about it six months ago. Yeah.
0: Well, it sounds like you're kind of like me when it comes to loudness. You know, I work with a lot of great master engineers and, you know, the master's mm-hmm. always better. But then sometimes the artist is like, do you like it better? And I was like, well, I mean, honestly, it's like, you know, it's louder, yeah. But do I like it better? Not always. you just kind of like, I really liked what I was listening to for 12 hours last week. But, you know, this
1: is cool too. Yeah, It's such a balance, you know? When I first got, I recently upgraded to uh, the smaller ATCs and recently got into the hundreds, which are, you know, midfields. And I remember when I, f- I had, had someone over here, when I was listening to him first, when I was listening to some modern music, whatever, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, these sound great. And he's like let me put this this on and what was it it was like diana crawl and i'm like what are you doing like i don't listen to diana crawl or whatever but it's just this stuff from the 90s and like late 80s that was brilliantly brilliantly recorded like masterfully engineered and you know that stuff's like crazy dynamic and like turn it on and turn it up and it was engaging in a way that like like visceral and emotional in a way that i I haven't experienced in a long time with music, like as an audio engineer, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it made me a believer again. Again, I feel like that old guy now. I'm like, where'd the dynamics go? But (laughs) it's true, like I am excited about that, kind of giddy because there's a whole world of like depth, dynamic and contrast that um, has become a little uh, dampened over the years. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. I mean, I, I don't know, I came up through so much old school, like, you know, jazz bands and Diana Craw records when I was working at Capitol that I have this, like, weird mix of, like, I really love pop music and that's, mm-hmm. like, all I make now. I'm not trying to dog Diana Craw. I just didn't grow up on her. Oh, no, I, yeah, no, totally. So, a question that I enjoy asking other mixers, and uh, if you listen to Andrew's episode, you, you probably heard this, mm-hmm. do you have any weird... Mixed tips, like shit that like you thought was a little weird, stumbled on an accident, and you're like, "Wow, it's awesome! I'm gonna keep doing it."
1: Oh gosh, oh yeah. So there are a few things. There's one I went through a phase. I've always really looked up to the type of mix engineer that is good at good bad, if that makes sense. Yeah, like the kind of bad that's just amazing. Right, like just doing things the wrong way. I mean, there, there, um, you know, there are a lot of mix engineers who are so good at that, and I tend to be. I wouldn't say I'm by the book, but there will be times where I'm be like, "Well, you shouldn't do that." And so, there's kind of a phase where I went through that, and I I just got into this mode at some point where I just you know started doing irresponsible things with phase. Like there's um there's a plugin called Wow Control, and I think I kind of heard a lot of this stuff more in like you know handful of years ago uh, when Trap was a lot bigger and uh, a lot of the vocal effects on that and they were just doing irresponsible things with phase. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I kind of got into that. Wow Control's got this really cool mode on it where you can offset the left and the right phase and then automate that. And so I, I kind of like mix that together with like pitch automation. So there's left, right phasing going where you really probably shouldn't do this because it probably doesn't translate to mono super well, but there have been times where I'll do, you know, I inspired by like Tame Impala do like big mix bus, like phaser moves and stuff like that. (laughs) I love doing stuff like that when I get the chance. It's kind of one of those things where, or like throw a Leslie on the mix bus for like a transition. Nice. Um, Just leaning into crazy stuff like that. It's kind of one of those things where you try it on a hundred songs and one of them makes it through. And So stuff like that are like, you know, I guess this probably isn't uncommon, but things like Decapitator on the mix bus or... There's a plugin called Sketch Cassette. You had uh, the oh, guy, Aberrant DSP. Love Sketch that Cassette. That guy, that Sketch Cassette's amazing. And it is incredible on mix bus <laughs> and stuff that you want to just absolutely peg to the wall. And again, it's kind of one of those momentary things. I try not to like, I was just talking about how I love dynamics. And I wish music has more dynamics. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, just put like a, you know, infinity to one compressor on your Mixbus uh, and mix into that. That's fun. But yeah, stuff like that. Or, you know, sometimes I feel like songs, there have been a number of times where I'll be near the end of the mix process. I'll be like, man, this is really cool and it sounds good, but it's like just missing character, like missing some sort of vibe. Yeah. And then, you know, you just kind of start doing irresponsible things on the mix bus to try to inject like an overall color and identity to it. So I think that's where a lot of those like sketch cassette or like, what would happen if I put, and this comes, I went first, like three years of my career, I refused to put a multiband compressor on my mix bus out of, out of just pure principle. But like, you know, there are times where I'm like, well, what would happen if I stacked like four multiband compressors on top of each other and just hammer all of them, you know? And sometimes you just end, end with a great vibe or even like, what happens if I don't use a limiter, but I just like clip the mix bus? And just print that and then bring it down, you know, a half a dB so DSPs don't flag it or something like that. It's just, you know. It's awesome. I think for me, a lot of it's been, um, I I think naturally I tend to be a little, not necessarily a rule follower, but tend to be a little more cautious with that kind of stuff. Because I'm like, I want to, you know, I don't want to mess things up. But learning from people who, you know, there is no wrong answer has been something that's been something I'm really interested in lately. Yeah, you reminded
0: me of this artist I was working with and he made a comment uh, about like I don't know how old you are, but he was like, you know, you, we got to mix this like a 90s kid and I was like, like a 90s kid, what do you mean? He's like, a 90s kid yeah, there is no fucking rules. They put like distortion and like phaser on the mix bus and I'm like, okay. All right, let's, let's, okay. let's, let's get weird. It. Let's mix, Did 90s mix, it, mix kids it like a 90s kid do that?
1: I guess I'm I, I I mean I grew up in the 90s, but I think he I think he means kids born in the 90s. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, like the hyperpop stuff. Yeah, never got no have you rules there. Into that? Absolutely no rules. Yeah, I've listened to some. Like digital clipping is a feature. Yes, yeah, it is. And it I actually is. love that. Yeah, I've
0: been into that. Some of those hyperpop mixes are like so. What's the best way? to They're just so atrocious. But the way that they're atrocious is like perfect. It's like things are distorted <sighs> so and good. disgusting. But you're like, that's the only way that this could be. It's. I could never yes. mix like that. I couldn't do
1: it. No, but I wish I could. Right. There are like I, there have been times where, like, I remember listening to—I uh, forget which Bleacher's record it was—where I heard the mixes on it, and I was like, y- wh- he just did stuff that I would never have the balls to do. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, panning moves. I'm like, why can't—that's like, so cool. That's so bold. That's so wrong. And why don't I do that more? And so, like, you know, things like, you know, hard panning the bass guitar and stuff like that, it's like— Shouldn't do that, but maybe you should. So I've just been trying to explore that a little bit more because that kind of goes against my natural inclination. I always have to constantly challenge that.
0: Well, it all goes to like who you're working with and whether it's Mm going to fit the song and, you know, if the artist is open to taking some chances like that, you know? Absolutely. You were talking about like somehow things end up too clean and you want to, you know, do something Mm -hmm. To kind of put them together and makes me think about some I don't know if you've had this, I'm sure you have, where the rough mix is just like it's like muddy and kind of shitty, but like Mm -hmm. you're like A being between your your mix and the rough mix, and you're like, there's still something about this muddy shittiness that like I was like, I need some of this. Like, where can I get this muddy shittiness in my mix? Because it's like now you've cleaned it all up and you've fixed it and you're like, there's something missing. And it can be like super frustrating, but then also like really enjoyable when it like Oh, dude. You know?
1: Absolutely. That's my favorite. I love being in that situation because it just challenges everything in me, and I get bored really easily. So, like, I get bored of my mixes every two months. I'm just like, I I hate my sound. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> just want to do things differently. That's awesome. And so it's refreshing for me. Uh, before we go, you're in a new or
0: newish studio. It looks amazing, by mm-hmm. the way. How how's that going?
1: Well, thank you, man. It's been really good. Where my wife and I bought a house here in Nashville, and. It's kind of a situation where we're like, well, we might be here for two years, we might be here for five years, uh, but we don't think we'll be here for like a long, long time. So I went into this knowing I wanted to create my next studio, not my final studio. So I kind of put some constraints on myself in terms of budget and like the way I wanted to build it. Yeah. So it's all like, you know, we didn't go down to the studs and build it in the walls or anything like that, but... Uh, Worked with a great company here in town called Audio Virtue. They built me my desk too, which is a cool like sit stand tiny desk, which I I absolutely love. Yeah, which they they're awesome to work with and pretty affordable too. But point being, they did a great job. Did all like panel on wall type of approach, and man, they did just a great, fantastic job. First time in my entire career I've worked in a room that had any acoustic design intention behind it. Nice. Everywhere has been like, I'm setting up in a garage that I'm going to be in for one year. So right. what's the point in building stuff in? You know, so it's a great room. It's not like, you know, I'm not in a northward room, but it's still a great room. And I'm so thankful to be in it. It's miles better than anything I've worked in. And it's crazy. Like, remember, you know, that there was a day where my monitors in my room all just like made sense to me in here. Cause you know how it takes a little bit of time to adjust. And it's like, the value of that is immense. Like being able to huge. make clear, quick decision, be very decisive in your work. You know, I took 45 minutes off of my mixes. You know what I mean? It's just wild. Oh yeah. So it's just no guessing. It's huge. It's so helpful.
0: Are you in the house or are you in a converted garage? I'm in the house. Mm-hmm. Does it bother the wife when you work or you you not no. you know, loud enough? Okay.
1: No, I'm, I'm a pretty quiet mix engineer. I'm okay. in like, you know, low 70s. So, I would keep it pretty quiet and, I've been mixing for as long as we've been married, so it's just <laughs> part of our lives. You know what I mean? Right, right. That's awesome. Yeah, no I, shock there. I did
0: the garage. This was my garage like two years ago, and mm-hmm. went to town, and and it's so worth it. Like, oh man, this is airing in 2023, but I didn't buy a plugin last year. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was a weird year. Didn't buy any plugins, but I just like when you can hear, I just made this decision of like, all right, I built this room. I've spent all this money on this room. I can hear better than I've been able to hear for like five or mm-hmm. six years. I'm just going to use the tools I have, you know, and yeah. just like really stop looking for another reverb. Just, Dude. if my reverb doesn't do what I'm, what I need it to do, I'm going to put something after it to make it do that thing. And yeah, being able to hear is just like the most important thing I would tell people to spend money on.
1: You know? Absolutely. And just a tangent here, I remember there were two really defining moments in my career, just like in my personal development. One was I was, you know, the classic kid coming up. I was like, I need the plugins that'll make me sound better. So I pirated the wave, you know, Waves Diamond or whatever it was, and I right. was using that. And I remember I was like, all right, I gotta make this snare drum sound good. So I like kept putting these Waves compressors on there. I was like, man, it still doesn't sound very good. And then one day I just realized like, I don't know how to use these tools. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I was like, I'm going to delete everything with the stock plugins and only work on those for like a couple months. And those were like the defining moment of me learning how to use a compressor. Like just how to use a compressor. Yeah. How do I utilize attack and release and, and knee and sidechain chain input? And, uh, and I would have never learned that if I was distracted by all these like bright, bright and pretty plugins. So like that was that mo- moment for me. And I'm a bit of a plugin hog. Some of it's, I've just made a decision that I'll own every single plugin that comes in on sessions because I'm not going to ask them to print anything. I'm just going to roll with it. Like I said, I want to make that as friction-free as possible, that handoff. But the other one was like, I spent, you know, I was bringing up Serban. I love Serban's work. But I was like reading all these threads with John. John was talking about their process and he's a little guarded with it as he should be. They have a sound. But I remember reading that. And I was like, oh man, how does he you know, do his vocals? And they would like tell stuff. And it was like all this stuff like, oh, it's, you know, just a CLA-76, like three or four dB of compression and a little bit of EQ. And and, and it was just like, this the stuff that everybody does. Oh yeah. And I realized I was like, oh my gosh, like the difference between me and Serban, besides we hear things differently. And obviously you know, there's that, but the diff- only difference between me and Serban, my monitors are like, I don't know, 10 times more expensive than his monitors. He's on Proax. Like, he's using Avid 192, uh, 192s or something like that.
0: And HDIOs or, yeah.
1: Or HDI, maybe it's HDIOs now. But, yeah, it was just like, and he uses no outboard and I was like, oh my gosh. Like, he's just better than me because he's been working harder than I have and been working longer than I have. The only difference between me and these guys that I really look up to, you know, all other things being equal. Like, Maybe my ear's not as good as theirs, but all those things, like the only difference is time. Like these guys have like 3,000, 4,000 mixes on me, you know? Oh, yeah. Years of experience. And it's like, okay, I think about, you know, looking back on my mixes last year and be like, oh my gosh, I would have done that so differently now. Like then realizing, man, how much did I learn in the past year just from reps and doing one more mix and learning a little bit every single mix And then you kind of extend that out for 10 years, 20 years. And it's like, oh, in 20 years, I'll be the ages of these people that I really, really look up to. And I mean, I think it's feasible that I could be somewhere in the same universe as them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, okay. And it kind of like diffused that whole like magic bullet idea of like, oh, I've just got to find that one thing that's going to make my vocals or my bass sound better. And it's like, no, like all it is is reps and learning and, getting 0.5% better every single day. Yeah. And it kind of took that like mania out of things and kind of settled me into that long-term mentality of like all I have to do, it's kind of like investing. It's like uh, the idea of uh, compound interest. It's like all I have to do is just stick around and be committed to getting a little bit better every single day or every single week. Yeah. And things are going to be fine. Yeah. Things are going to be great. A lot of those guys are heroes now just because they stuck around longer than the guys that quit. You know what I mean? And so it's like, okay, you got to be fine like in in what we do, like you got to be fine with being patient and taking the long approach and it's kind of one of those careers and industries that, you know, every once in a while people do get overnight success or might seem like overnight success, but 99% of the people it's just it's just that steady commitment to doing great work and serving your clients really well and being encouraging and an ally for the people that you work for. And, you know, yeah, might happen. You might have that big break in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. I mean, I know a guy that was working here in Nashville for years and you're like 20 years before he had like a big record. It's like, you know, then it just happened out of nowhere. It was yeah. just right place, right time, right artists, right songs. And yeah. Yeah, my little tangent on plugins.
0: <laughs> no, there is like uh, there is a little bit of like last man, last woman standing in this industry. It's, Definitely, you know, because it takes a long time to get good. And I feel like maybe you agree. The better you get, or the more hours you have, the faster the improvements happen. So, like now, mm-hmm. you, like you said, you know, looking back at last year, I would have wished I would have done that differently. I feel like that's so much more common for me now. It's like this year versus last year. It's like a whole different mix engineer when, you know, like five years ago, Mm -hmm. it seemed to take like five years to be like, oh, I'm better now. And now, yeah, something your ear just gets better and things, you know, you hit 10,000 hours of this and 10,000 hours of that and it all kind of sticks together. But I feel like the longer you do this, the more drastic those gains are. Those Absolutely. Compounding gains. Are you an atomic habits person? Have you read Atomic Habits? No, I haven't. Oh, well, you said that you know, get like half a percent, one percent better every day. It's uh it's an interesting book. Most people like it if you're already in that mindset of like getting better every day. Then you might think it's kind of like, oh, I do this already. But really mm-hmm. basically about, you know, dropping bad habits, building good habits, and compounding interest of like your life, essentially.
1: Right. Sounds like something I'd be interested in. You
0: should check it out. It's something about that book. Like, you know, all those kind of productivity, like, you know, sort your shit out type books. Mm-hmm. Something about the way he wrote that book, that one clicked with me more than all the other ones. I was like, this makes sense.
1: Yeah. Those kind of books are definitely a dime a dozen.
0: Yeah, like when it actually connects, you know, connects for you. But yeah, I think it's, I don't remember exactly. I'm not going to have this right. I should Google it. But it's like, if you get 1% better at something every day, mm-hmm. you're going to be 27 times, I think it's 27 times better at the end of a year. If you think Dang. about it. You know, like if you actually just do those compounding 1%. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to be 27 times better at me next year. <laughs> exactly. you're not. Twice That'd be as good. amazing. Yeah. Awesome, man. This has been a ton of fun. I've got a couple of questions that I close the show yeah. with. Uh, one is, an, is a new one. It's like a listening recommendation. Is there anything that you've really been listening to that you love or any artists that you think people are sleeping on? Any music that people should check out?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. There's a local artist here in town. His uh, name is Mooney, M-O-O-N-E-Y. I think is really good. I'm um, doing something I think that's very interesting to me. He's it's produced cool. by a buddy of mine who I think is a phenomenal producer. His name's Michael Gio. So they're doing something really cool that I love. And then, and I feel like... I went from listening to like a bunch of you know top forty and pop to now like literally I listen to you know like Sinatra and Bossa Nova and stuff (laughs) like that. So I I'm probably not the right person to ask about about that right now. I've been on like a big Sinatra kick.
0: Did you get uh, who knows live at the Sands with the Count Basie Orchestra? I think
1: you should check that one out. It's good. I would love to, but I'm I feel like I. Anytime anybody brings up, like, what new music should I be listening to? Because they assume that since I do music that I know everything about, like, new music. I'm just like, I have got a disappointing answer for you. (laughs) I listen to podcasts. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I I listen to podcasts and uh, ambient drones in the morning. And then whatever comes out of my Pro Tools rig. Yeah, I I just just listen
1: to a 432 hertz drone. That's right.
0: Well, I'll put links. Is there a record? The Mooney, is there a record out? Uh, I think it's mostly just been singles, singles at this point. It's okay. just kind of an upstart thing. I'll put a link to Spotify or something in there.
1: Very very interesting music.
0: Okay, I'll check it out. So the final two questions of the show, they're the
1: same for everybody. is uh,
0: Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you?
1: Ooh. Yeah, so there's a moment early on. You know, you get kind of in that grind mentality where you're like, I got to make it to the top. I got to be, you know, the best mix engineer in the world. And um, I think that there were two big lessons that I learned in that period. So I remember when I was moving here, I was like convinced. The best mix wins. That was my thought. I was like, I just have to be the best mix engineer, create the best mix and the best mix wins. And I had this rude awakening when I realized like, that's not true, you know? Like, I, I'd have conversations with people and, I, and you know, I'd find out they worked with so-and-so mix engineer. I was like, yeah, how's that going? Or, had, you know, people would relay conversations like this to me and the person, you know, producer would be like, yeah, you know, I like his mixes sometimes. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're okay. But he just makes my life so easy. And I was like, oh no. Like, there's more to this than I thought there was. And so I think, like, that was a big moment for me of redefining, like, what does being a successful mix engineer look like? And it's not just creating a technical work of art, it's kind of multi-layered for me. It's being a solution to people's problems, making the mix process something that they look forward to and that they know will be the easiest part of the process for them. Um, most people, you, know, if you find out when talking to people that the mix process for most people is stressful and often very disappointing. And uh, just realizing like, okay, that's such a big part of it. And even if the mix is okay, but the experience is phenomenal, and they feel like they have somebody in their corner that's cheering them on, there's such tremendous value to that because being an artist is so hard. Like, I don't... Oh, yeah. I don't envy the artist path because, I mean, it's obviously incredibly rewarding when you create things that connect with people, but it's a hard road. And in a lot of ways, the deck is stacked against them. So having someone that's legitimately in their corner that they don't just view as a, you know, someone they're hiring, but they view as a friend and as a place of safety and as a place of encouragement... Now, that was a big thing, realizing it's not just the best mix that wins. There's so much more that goes into it, you know, from a workflow standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. And then another thing, you kind of look at, kind of rub shoulders with people that are famous or, or or successful or work with real famous people. And you think, like, oh, man, that's what I need. Like, I need that big client. I need to work with, I don't know, fill in the blank, you know, Justin Bieber, Olivia right. Rodrigo, whatever. Yeah. Like, whoever the big name is at the point at that point, like, I need to find a way to work with them. And then you just, like, you kind of get into their story and realize, like, oh, Josh Goodwin mixes all of Justin Bieber stuff because Josh Goodwin was there when nobody cared. You know what I mean? And, like, right. came up with him in the time before he was a super megastar and has that, like, relational investment and uh, equity to where it's like, you know, they're going to be working together for life. You know what I mean? Because it's not just a, not just a transaction that came up together. And it's like, you know, you talk to people that know a thousand people in the industry, every single A&R, you know, VP of whatever. It's like, oh man, I got to get to that. But no, it's like, all you have to focus on, this is what I, a big realization for me, is like, oh, these people just came up around each other. Like, that's just what happened. Yep. Like they were all college graduate idiots like I I was at that point. <laughs> And they just figured it out and stuck around and helped each other out. And this guy slept on that dude's couch and loaned him $150 when he couldn't pay his utilities. You know what I mean? It's yep. like you come up with that and then it just happens naturally. You just have to be generous and helpful and a part of people's lives in a meaningful way. And I would imagine most of the time it works out to where you wake up one day and you're like, oh, wow, I'm working around a lot of really amazing, talented people you know, impactful people. So that was a big pivot for me of like, it's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the whole like Serb and aha moment. It's like, oh no, it's just about being excellent every single day in relationship and in the work that I do and maintaining the values that got me to where I am at this point, maintaining those in the future and just allowing the natural process to happen. Yeah. Not get antsy about the overnight success. No, you can't you, waste of time. Yeah,
0: you can't wait for the outcome. It's you know you have to like yeah. put the work in.
1: But it goes back to you know what you were
0: saying when you lived in Arkansas. It's you have to surround yourself with people that you're inspired by and mm-hmm. that you want to work with. And you're echoing my experiences in this industry where people come up together. Like A and R guys hire mixers because they were college roommates and yeah. mastering engineer, whatever it is. And that's just the way it is. And you know the one wave moves
1: out, next wave moves in. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So I guess what you're saying is just wait till your competitors die off, right? <laughs> that's the name of the game. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Almost. I'm kidding. Almost. Yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> you can't live forever. Yeah, that's right. You got to retire eventually. Exactly. So uh, last question before we go is what is your current biggest goal that you can share with us? And what's the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it?
1: Well, I think, and I had alluded to this earlier, um, I think for me, it's my biggest goal is just the everyday. And uh, it is valuing every single mix that I do, like it's the biggest mix I've ever done, even if it's someone that you know doesn't have any following or anything like that. i I really realize like for me, I'll speak for myself when you have a lot of work coming in, you have the you know the opportunity to work on a lot of different things it can start feeling like a job some days and then you kind of start checking out creatively a little bit. And you have those moments where you're like, oh, this mix is pretty good. They'll probably green light it. So I'm tired. I'm just going to send it off, you know? And I I remember starting out my career saying, I'm never going to be that person. I'm never going to do that. And there were moments where that seemed like a very attractive way to do things because I was just tired. You know what I mean? Tired yeah, and worn right. out. So I've just recently just kind of like, had a fire lit under me to just maintain that commitment to bringing my best to every single thing that I work on. And, you know, even just being like, all right, maybe I had a long day and I spent a a lot longer on this mix than I thought I would. And it still doesn't sound like I know it could, like there's something missing. I can't quite access it yet. And just being fine with like, all right, I'm going to work on it more. Even though this mix is going to take me twice as long as the last one, and even if not many people m- will hear this mix potentially, like still having that commitment to be like, no, I value the, the investment and the trust of the person that sent this to me. And I'm going to work on it until I'm proud to send it out. Yeah. So that's where I'm at right now. That's my biggest goal is to just become committed anew to that mentality. You know what I mean?
0: It's awesome. I love that. That's That's really good. Because it is, like you said, you have those moments where you're like, this is probably fine, and everybody that does this for a living has definitely crossed through that, you know, multiple times. Yeah, you
1: you learn that there is a good enough threshold, and um, I think once I learned that there was a good enough threshold, that became a, it was very tempting to just send good enough, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, but I can't do that. I don't. I can't be proud of myself because as soon as you start doing that, your passion for your work dries up. Well,
0: you got to watch out for perfect though.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, there, there's like the moment where it like clicks, which, you know, most mix engineers are like, that's when I knew it was done. And, and they're like, mm-hmm. well, what happened? You're like, it felt right. There's like that moment. And then there's like going six hours past that moment.
1: Oh, yeah. There's a balance to be had for sure. Yeah. Like there's definitely a point where you work on it and it just starts getting worse. Like <laughs> You hit the, the peak of the just quality. Diminishing returns, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: Matt, this has been awesome. Please share with people where they can find you on Absolutely. wherever you want.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am pretty basic guy. My website's just matthuber.co and Instagram, Matt J. Huber. And yeah, you can come say hey to me. Awesome. And I'll probably not answer for six weeks and then randomly be back on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Depends when you catch me. Yeah. But, uh, man, I appreciate you taking the time. It's been a lot of
0: fun. I really enjoyed this. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to keep in touch. Absolutely. So glad to join. Thank you so much, Travis. So that's it for episode 82. Thanks to Matt Huber for coming on the show. Please check him out and his work. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, the absolute most supportive thing you could do for me is to share it with a friend. I know it's kind of a weird thing to do sometimes, but pull your phone out right now and text this episode to one person you think might get value out of it. It would be huge for me. Finally, thanks to Stephen Boyd for editing the audio version of this one. And with that, I will see y'all right back here for the next one.